If your night is boring and kinda generic, you just need a good scare from the Baba Derek. Baba Derek, Derek, Derek. And I have a bowl of worms. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by me, your movie monster boy Aaron, and my cowardly co-host, the Baba Derek, in which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres, as well as discuss just how scary they are for horror newbies and horror junkies alike. This week, we are going to be covering the 2014 fantasy horror parenting fear of children <laughs> monster <laughs> mashup, the Baba Duke, Duke, Duke. Yeah. It's very apropos that I didn't sleep very well last night, and a lot of it was due to my lovely <laughs> daughter. Little monster. <laughs> yeah. And then well, here we are recording this episode. You know, I got to hand it to the Baba Duke. It scared me, but in a way I was not expecting. So that's a preview for later on in this discussion. But real quick, before I forget, you know, those of you who, whether you stuck around or skipped our last episode, but, uh, you know, I hope you're back and you're going to enjoy this episode. But uh, yeah, thanks again to Andrew Parker for coming on the last episode uh, where we talked cannibal movies. And I just wanted to shout him out again on this episode in case anyone did wind up skipping that episode. You know, please be sure to go check out his stuff. The main thing I think you should check out is his Crypta podcast that features a lot of voice work from a lot of the last podcasts crew actually like henry zabrowski holden mcneely ed larson it's a great audio drama comedy horror about cryptids uh in area 51 but yeah again the name of that is crypta so look up his podcast check out his other stuff he's into he does a, a lot of content stuff so yeah if you're you're here with us you know and you did listen to that episode thank you and if you didn't listen to that episode but you're listening now you know again thank you for checking us out and sticking with us i know last episode was a little more intense than uh our normal subject matter i would would say but you know let's get on with this one cool so before we get into that discussion as always let's take a second to discuss some horror that we have gotten into in the past bit whether it's other movies tv shows books video games etc derek what have you got for this week as far as some recommendations for our audience bro not a whole lot if i'm being honest this past week was kind of crazy for me i had a lot of family coming and going had a little minor surgery to remove a growth on my nose and that was a giant pain figuratively and literally yeah i just haven't really had time to consume media of any kind um i am in the middle of a stephen king book but i'm not far enough to really like give a final judgment on that so i'll save that for later recommendation the only two things i was going to bring up are kind of more horror adjacent and one of them is kind of a stretch even then i'll start off with the one that's a little more of a stretch and it's because i know i've shouted them out before on our podcast under recommendations but i checked out an album by the cramps it was an album i haven't listened to from them and the reason why i say this is a stretch because like their other albums they are very heavy psychobilly and their subject matter is very horrific i'm thinking the song tv set specifically yeah i was a teenage werewolf and and those but uh the album that i listened to was uh actually an album they put out back in 1990 called stay sick and this one was a little bit less on the creep factor and like them sounding like ghouls and much more leaned 
heavily into rockabilly and just straight up surf rock even. It still had some horror sensibilities to it, you know, but the songs all slap. The whole album is pretty rocking. It's not their best work. I still think Songs the Lord Taught Us is their best album and Psychedelic Jungle is also a better album. But this is a pretty solid album too. So if you'll dug those other two albums, which I, I know I brought up both of them on different episodes as recommendations, and we have some of their songs from both those albums on our uh, playlist on Spotify. So if you dug that, I would definitely give Stay Sick a listen to. Um, it's a little bit more, I don't want to say mainstream, but more accessible sounding than the other two. It does lean more heavily into the rockabilly and even a little bit of garage rock and garage punk, but yeah. there's not really too much horrifying material in there, but it still has a a bit of an edge to it. It still has even a little bit of exploitation in that weird like dark psychobilly way. I'm thinking like Bikini Girls with Machine Guns. There is a song on there called The Creature from the Black Leather Lagoon, uh, which is what it sounds like. So there is like an allusion to like a monster movie in that. It's not anything like super dark or fucked up like some of their earlier works, but it's a solid album. The guitarist Poison Ivy still has some crazy licks on there. Lux is still Lux in the interior yeah. <laughs> doing, um, his, weird doing his weird zombie thing. But um, yeah, it's it's just a solid album. Um, so like, if you're not necessarily looking for a horror edge, but you want to get into rockabilly, psychabilly, again, I do think it's a little more accessible than their other albums, but I do think their other albums are better. But it's solid. Yeah, I agree. Like, I I like their earlier stuff the most, but they had such a quick, hard and fast kind of burn that none of it's bad, right? They, like, didn't really have that weird slump, oh, we gotta rediscover ourselves and redefine our sound kind of thing, you know? They just kind of hammered their shit out and kept going. Yeah, and I still haven't listened to uh, A Date with Elvis, which is their other album from the 80s. So I don't know what that one is like, because that's the album in between Psychedelic Jungle and then this album, Stay Sick. So I don't know like if that one has a little bit more edge and darkness to it. But Psychedelic Jungle and Songs the Lord Taught Us definitely did. You know, when you're listening to it, you can tell that there was no way this kind of band could last forever, but they did last longer than you would think a psychobilly band would have. Yeah. Along with the darkness, they had that like rock and roll lifestyle, live fast, die young, you know, and Lux winded up passing away probably before his time. And I think uh, some of the other past members, because there were a lot of members who came and went throughout the years, I think drummer wise, you know, but there are other, I think one or two other members who have died since then. So yeah, like I said, that was more of my stretch. The one that is a little bit closer to horror was a. Uh, I watched another documentary on YouTube for free, and it's called The Missing 411. Yeah, this is some interesting shit. Yeah, this documentary is based off of a book called The Missing 411, which is all about 
weird disappearances in national parks across the world, but I think it specifically focuses on in America and how there is no national database created yet for all these missing cases across the United States and how like the parks don't talk to each other at all, how the federal government has kind of just not even overlooked it, just ignore it. Like it kind of is one of those things where like this keeps happening every couple of years, like something happens to someone that shouldn't have, but the parks keep going about totally fine and there's no like oversight over it. But it doesn't yeah. sound like people are purposely ignoring it. It's just like people are just like no one cares enough. I haven't looked up the author in the book itself, but I believe their goal was to like kind of at least try and in a book format catalog as many of these disappearances as they could like over the last several decades uh, here in America. But Missing 411 specifically deals with a couple cases. I think it's about five cases of children disappearing. And it really kind of centers more around one case in general. And you can Google this. It's it's the case of Dior Coons. Dior spelled D-E-O-R-R and Coons is K-U-N-Z. Documentary almost treats it like a Casey Anthony-esque true crime. Like who is at fault here? Did someone or a couple people want to murder this kid? I don't know how I felt about this part of the documentary because like I was going into it more like wanting to like learn about like the coast to coast-esque like you know disappearances of like how the fuck did this happen or like we can't explain this. The documentary did spend a lot of time on this case specifically and almost was just trying to point blame at everybody for this but uh his case is that he went missing back on july in 2015 at a timber creek campground and he went missing while both his parents are there his grandfather and his quote-unquote weird grandfather's friend that like no one in the family knew about and like is super fucking sus this campground is like way out in the boonies already started off weird the timing of when the boy went missing was literally minutes and it was literally like disappeared in a matter of several yards between where some of the group was and where like the grandfather was and the grandfather was at the campsite supposed to be watching him but i think the creepy part and unsettling part is they could not find fucking any evidence of him anywhere yeah there's no evidence even if it was there was foul play here like they can't find any criminal element because like immediately the parents just the way it is in these cases the parents are immediately suspects and everyone who was at this campground is immediately the top suspects they went searching for days they covered multiple miles all around this boy just literally disappeared it was like as if he got lifted off into the sky and no evidence whatsoever left behind the documentary is going around that because i think it the documentary came out in like 2019 so it was kind of going along at the same time as new developments were happening on this case and like weirdly the parents were like trying to stay out of the limelight whereas the rest of the family was all trying to push them to like no go on talk shows tell like your story because the more people get eyes on this maybe just maybe someone can come forward and either put it to rest uh you know you can finally like say goodbye to him or like explain what happened to him etc yeah. and that's kind of where more of like the casey anthony angle is going to it but a couple of the other boys or other children that they talk about there was a uh the disappearance of jared and i'm probably butchering this pronunciation Adadero. he disappeared back in 1999 it was one of those weird disappearances where like they found parts of his clothing like in an area that there was absolutely no way he physically could have gotten to they were saying it was very unlikely that a mountain lion or something like that could have gotten him because like his clothes weren't oh i think some of it was torn but it wasn't torn in a way of like an animal yeah then they found his shoes 
shoes all these years later and his shoes were in like pristine condition. It was just weird there. There was another like strangest appearance by Greater Lake National Park where an eight-year-old boy went missing like in 2006 and he just ran up a slope and fucking vanished from like the face of the earth. They didn't talk as much as I hoped they would have. They did more focus on like, these individual cases, but if you want to go back and listen to our Fire in the Sky or Dead Zone episode, at least on one of those, we briefly talked about the missing 411 and Evan was talking about how these mysterious disappearances and like some of the factors that are going in, but they are all always really fucking strange. They disappear. There's absolutely no way like we wouldn't be able to find them or at least find them dead, at least in a certain time frame or a certain area. It's as if they just fucking vanished or they'll find evidence of them like years later or like in a strange time in a strange place from where they disappeared. And it'll be something weird like, yeah, their shoes were in pristine condition or all their clothes are in this one area, but we found no evidence of bones or anything. And even if wild animals did kill them because there have been instances of wild animals dragging off little children they would be like torn to shreds and there would still be bones and still be like dna evidence of them and it's more just like they were literally abducted by aliens um and there are some people who do believe that is also the case there was one case and they actually wind up interviewing the guy in modern times that he went missing for 19 hours back in like 1952 the amount of mileage he covered in those 19 hours and they reenacted it with like a survival expert and the survival expert was like it took me longer and i had all these supplies with me to keep me going going there's no way like this little two or three year old boy could go this amount of mileage in this rough of a terrain in 19 hours and he was like found face down in the snow with some like little bit of tears in his clothes to this day the boy because he he survived that he was found alive he has no memory of this his parents even kept all his clothes and everything he has them as like souvenirs and even showed them on camera and that was really cool his name is keith parkins so if you want to search uh missing 411 keith parkins that's another one they cover it's an interesting documentary it's definitely like it was only like an hour and 40 minutes or so um you can watch it for free on youtube it's a nice to like put on the background or like if you just really are interested in this topic apparently there is another missing 411 documentary called hunted it's the same thing but instead of focusing on children it's about hunters who go missing i think i might watch that one because i'm curious as to like what some of the weird shit is with that because hunters going missing that are like fully armed adults is way weirder and creepier to me than children going missing because children are so vulnerable. Yeah. Children at a certain age don't know better. They can wander off and get lost easily. But hunters, yeah, that's a whole different story. But yeah, if you want to like keep yourself awake at night and be like, what the fuck is going on? Why is no one like screaming about this? Yeah, just go down the rabbit hole of the missing 411 and disappearances in national parks in general because it's weird, unexplainable shit. Time and time again, experts and people who like try and react, reenact this stuff are still baffled as to like some of these cases, why they're so unresolved and whatever so two things on this note one when i was maybe in high school it was one of the last times that we went up to ohio to see my dad's family before my great-grandparents passed this is in ohio this is farmland this is just giant wide open fields all the different parcels are kind of sectioned off with a 
thin strip of trees to kind of delineate where one person's land ends and the other person's land begins, right? So there's literally a thin strip of trees running the entire length next to my great-grandparents' house. Uh, Like, you can stand in their yard and, like, see clear through to the other side of these trees. It's maybe a hundred feet thick. Trees just runs all the way down. And there's, like, a creek that kind of runs in between the properties. So we would go down there and play. And one evening, we came back to the house and my great-grandfather who was late 80s early 90s was tromping out in the yard putting his jacket on with his boots on and was coming to find us at first we were like what's up grandpa and he was like what are you kids doing Yo, y'all know how dangerous it is. Why did y'all go out there? You should have told somebody, and I never would have let you go out there. And we're like, what is he talking about? Like, what is so dangerous? You know, and he said, there's bears in those woods. And we started laughing. And I feel bad about it in hindsight, right? Yeah. But it was just one of those things like, Grandpa, bears, it's maybe like a hundred feet by like half a mile, just a thin strip of trees and a little creek. Bears, what? And this is farmland. Sure, whatever. We were kind of laughing. We were little shithead kids. But the older I've gotten, the more that that has actually bothered me. The fact that my fucking 80-year-old-plus grandfather was storming out there to, like, save our lives because he felt it was that dangerous, right? And this is the generation of person who, like, oh, yeah, when we were fucking kids, we used to go run and do all kinds of dangerous shit, and we wouldn't come back until it was after after dark and kids nowadays are a bunch of fucking pussies right that was my grandfather's entire generation's yeah. outlook on everything yeah. right and so it does bother me the fact that why did he not want us to go in those woods right like was it bears there's no bears out there right like i said just the older i've gotten the more i've been like what was up with that was he just crazy and senile and kind of getting old i don't know but he wasn't he did not lose his sharpness it was just a very weird instance of like him being really fucking intensely like Y'all are in danger. You need to come inside. Don't ever go in those woods. And we're just like, the fuck? Yeah, it's like one of those weird, unexplainable. Maybe like something happened to like a friend of a friend or family. Uh, Yeah, no idea. Someone like that way. The other thing too, along the same lines as the missing 411. If you want to go way deep into fucking Crazyville with the same idea, check out season three of Channel Zero, which is called Butcher's Block. It is dealing with the general idea of the missing 411, that there are all these people that have disappeared in national parks, but then it also works in the, like, creepypasta urban legend of park rangers finding random staircases to nowhere in the middle of national parks and forests and people going missing and dot 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 weird shit. So that season is maybe the most bananas of that show, but it's a lot of fun by the end of especially so definitely check that out if anything that Derek was talking about is intriguing and you want to just go off the deep end fully so two things that because like I know you you're talking about with that story like with your grandfather but they're one of the older rangers they were interviewing who like was wrapped up in at least one of the cases trying to figure out what happened to the kid he was saying that a lot of times the animals that will attack and actually carry off children are big cats like
like cougars yeah. and mountain lions. And he said, even if like a two year old is small enough, even like a big bird of prey will like snatch a kid thinking it's like a giant rabbit or something. He was saying in whatever case he was talking about, he's just like, there would be evidence. There'd be scraps of clothing. There'd be blood. There'd be bones. There'd be something. Yeah. Most of the time when it's a big cat, they literally like mostly just disembowel. They don't consume the entire body, bones and all. No animal does that. And I don't know. I just, I feel like, and you know, it's probably the same way in a lot of countries or all countries, but I feel like in the mainland United States, the woods in general are like, you know, we always talk about the bottom of the sea, right? The very deep down, yeah. like the sea is unexplored. I still feel like there are a lot of parts and a lot of woods areas in like the middle of the country that people don't really know at all. I don't know. There has to be some explanation for like these disappearances, whether it's something as silly as like literal sinkholes that just we don't really know about where they can get sucked into the ground and it's as if it wasn't there. I don't know. There, there has to be something going on, but it is surprising to me because like, I mean, the fucking CDC tracks weird parasites that have only killed maybe 120 people over the last several decades. But then we have well over 411, just 411 are the only ones. That's just the ones we know, we know about. about. Yes. Yeah. And nothing, no database for that. Um, that's just insane to me. But I, I, yeah, I just there's always like some story with woods nearby because I mean, even growing up in suburbia, New Orleans, which there were still some wooded areas nearby. And there are always these creepy urban legends around them. There's something about the woods that is is still very much untamed. And, you know, we've talked about this before with like movies like The Witch, Nature vs. Man. But I think there is a little bit of, you know, nuggets of reality in that just with all these disappearances and how easily you can become lost just walking into a tree line and then turning around and realizing like you thought you walked straight the entire time, but you didn't. And now all you see is trees around you. Yeah, well, it, it's totally just that whole the woods is the devil's church kind of thing, for sure. Yeah. There's there's something very primal about it that's beyond our understanding and modern sensibilities, yeah. Yeah, but yeah so other than the missing 411, which, you know, is real-life high strangeness, I've got a couple things on my mind that I uh, want to bring up next episode as far as Rex go, but I think I'll save those for next episode. I'll just keep it to the missing 411 and, and stay sick by the cramps. Okay, cool. Well, then, yeah, I've got a couple movies to talk about. The first thing, since you just mentioned you were in the middle of reading a Stephen King book, I actually rewatched for the first time since I was in middle school children of the corn okay. from yeah, 1984 yeah. directed by fritz kirsch starring linda hamilton same year as terminator God, linda hamilton is in that movie yeah yeah peter horton john franklin plays isaac and courtney Gaines is malachi both of whom apparently scarred an entire generation of children. You know, it's a couple that stumbles onto this small, isolated town in the middle of nowhere, like Nebraska, Iowa. Something, yeah. And discover that these children have essentially all formed a cult with supernatural leanings, and they have murdered all the adults in the town. Dot, dot, dot. Things go from there. And so these two outsiders, like, wander in. The opening scenes are pretty good from what I remember, because it's the children all like starting the process of murdering the adults. They poison all the adults at the diner, if I remember correctly, and like they do all bunch of shit. Because I haven't seen it either since fuck, I might have been in high school too. It was either high school or early college. And I remember I was with a bunch of my friends and we were all crashing at someone's house and we did a double 
feature of Children of the Corn and maybe The Exorcist. Okay. And uh, <laughs> we actually watched Children of the Corn second. And I remember some of my friends being like disappointed because they didn't find it scary enough. They said I don't remember like too many jump scares or anything in that movie. But I do remember it being pretty disturbing and I liked it back then when I watched it. But, you know, what are your thoughts now on it? Because I haven't seen it in probably a decade at least. I mean, it's still fine it's certainly in the like bottom half of the Stephen King adaptations just for the fact that it's just not that interesting despite its premise for what the premise is it should this is be amazing yeah interesting yeah it's fine the conclusion of the movie is kind of exactly what you expect it to be there's never enough edge to the movie itself I think now I have heard that the short story is considerably darker and more mean-spirited and i'm probably going to check it out soon but the movie's fine it's totally serviceable it's one that i remember seeing quite often on cable growing up it's got an interesting set of performances from again franklin and Gaines playing these two kind of main children in this cult linda hamilton is fine just nothing really like stands out and i wanted to kind of give it a second chance Arrow just put it out in 4K, and so I was like, man, do I really, like, need to pick this up while it's on 4K, and these limited editions are still here, or is this one that, like, I can for sure skip, and I think I'm gonna for sure, like, skip buying this one, Yeah, because it just didn't grab me, you know, again, but I'm very curious to check out the actual Stephen King source short story for this. So, speaking of weird connections in Stephen King books, and, like, how they're all kind of connected to each other, the creature itself he who walks behind the rose what like yeah. the thing they're worshiping apparently fans have like made allusions and connections to it being an alias or a form of randall flag who is the darth vader of stephen king books yeah because he's like the main bad guy in the stand and he appears in a bunch of other books including the dark tower series is always a big antagonist i remember reading that there are other allusions to other books like usual like i think the town gatlin is mentioned in it there was a town that like another other antagonist in one of his other books i think mother abigail yeah or maybe she's the protagonist or a, a good character i don't remember in the stand yeah she's one of the protagonists in the stand yeah and then i think gatlin is if i remember reading this correctly it's the location of another book of his what's that one 1920 1922 1922 yeah apparently oh, i think okay. that there, it's a location in that one so yeah it's it's interesting that all these books kind of connect together and we'll get back into that you know at a later date cool so yeah the next three i have are all a continuation of my exploration into severance all the haunts be ours so i've been making my way through that box set since i got it these three were kind of the next in the fold uh so the first one is allison's birthday from 1981 directed by ian coughlin this is an australian movie about a girl who is playing ouija board seance with her friend and they channel a spirit that basically tells her hey don't go home on your 19th birthday dot 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 (laughs) can't tell you why can't give you details uh just your 19th birthday is bad so then of course it zooms forward to her 19th birthday and we discover oh your family has all these weird ulterior plans for you dot 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 it's fun it's very rough around the edges as far as the filmmaking's concerned but the premise is interesting enough and it goes to weird enough places that it's definitely worth the journey. 
There is some fairly intense imagery in it that's just kind of got a hypnotic quality to it. It feels out of place because it feels like you're watching a horror movie that was made by John Waters. <laughs> okay. In a weird sort of way. Yeah. It doesn't quite have the trash edge to it, but I'm, I'm talking like visually. It has that very grainy 16 millimeter kind of look to it. The lighting is rough. Everything's just a little bit too tacky. Like it has that kind of weird flavor to it, but with with some strange occult happenings. So that one was pretty fun. The second one is Celia from 1989, directed by Ann Turner. This is also an Australian movie. This was more a coming-of-age fantasy slash drama about a young girl growing up in 1950s Australia. She becomes obsessed with this tale this legend of the hobbyaz which are these goblin-esque creatures that will sneak into your house and like make off with your shoes and your grandmother and your babies and they don't like loud dogs barking and they don't like pots and pans banging and you know just that kind of thing so gremlins but shittier in every way <laughs> kind of yeah it's more about her growing up new neighbors move in next door they are members of the australian Communist Party. So there's this entire subplot running through about the adults being involved in this weird kind of communist underground social group in the midst of, again, the Cold War world crackdown around communism. The little girl also wants a pet rabbit more than anything. And this is, of course, a time where Australia is battling rabbits that are taking over and destroying crops and, like, being a nuisance, right? So, of course, the parents are like, no, you can't have a fucking rabbit. Are you kidding me? They're vermin. They're like rats. They're like snakes. No, you don't need a pet rabbit. So it's this girl essentially seeing everybody in her life who is somehow antagonistic toward her as a hobbyah. She's kind of seeing hobbyahs everywhere, and they just are kind of the underlying source of all the trauma that's happening in her life and all the unfairness that's happening in her life. And the movie goes to a really fucking dark and interesting place. Is it capital H horror? No. But again, it has a lot of the weird daydreamy kind of quality to it, like Heavenly Creatures by Peter Jackson. You could also definitely look at something like Pan's Labyrinth. And it's yeah. kind of the same idea where it's this girl who's lost in like her own fantasy world and using that to kind of make sense of all the larger adult themes and drama that's going on around her that she's kind of privy to. Like I said, not capital H horror, but very interesting still. Yeah, that does sound interesting. The last one that I watched is a movie from 1991. It is a Canadian movie directed by Rysard Bugajgi. This is Clear Cut, starring Graham Greene. This is a lawyer coming to defend a Native American tribe who is protesting a logging company that is trying to log on their sacred lands. Holy shit, is this prophecy? It's the same kind of idea, but instead of a fucking pizza bear this lawyer guy and then like the head CEO logging guy they are essentially being fucking terrorized by Graham Greene 
who, at least the impression I get is, may or may not actually be real. There may be some, like, weird, slight supernatural edge to him. He seemingly kind of comes out of nowhere. He's a very modern and adjusted, but seemingly this avatar of vengeance indigenous man who takes them captive and drags them through the wilderness and just kind of tortures them and drives them crazy along the entire way as some kind of divine retribution for the sins of western society and the spoiling of all of this pure land it's very very intense some of the shit that happens in the movie and there's a lot of philosophical edge to it but like i said there seems to be this almost cormac mccarthy-esque thread to the graham green character that he is somehow bigger than life and seemingly more dangerous than a normal man should be this movie sounds fucking awesome by the way (laughs) yeah i mean it's pretty awesome like if you're down with like wilderness survival movies if you're down with oh they actually shot this on a location what they're doing seems kind of dangerous movie is very very much that kind of thing like i said there is this supernatural edge to the entire thing and a slight way that the movie never really definitively answers or resolves yeah and i found it to be pretty fucking fascinating again like this is not capital h horror either but it's dealing with enough cultural folk legend stuff and like i said there seems to be kind of this metaphor for like divine natural vengeance coming to get these people that is running through the entire thing so it it makes sense why again you know all three of these are in this box set they don't again have to be like capital h horror non-stop to be like folk horror specifically like for the entire purpose of what this box set is right now all three of these are all available as of right now on shutter they are still in the like folk horror collection on shutter you can still watch all of these again they are part of the box set all the haunts be ours a compendium of folk horror from severn films that box set is still available to purchase but the price kind of keeps going up on it so you know if that's something that you might be interested in there is so far a lot of good shit in that box set and if you're just generally interested a lot of the movies are available on shutter to stream right now so that's all i've got i am also kind of simmering on some books that i don't want to discuss until i'm finished with them but uh yeah i think that's gonna be it we've talked long enough let's go ahead and jump into our movie this week which once again is going to be Jennifer Kent's debut feature from 2014. This is The Babadook. Samuel. I want you to die. It is real. It is real. It's just a book. Where'd you get this? On the shelf. If it's in a word or it's in a look, you can't get rid of the Babadook. It wants to scare you first. Then you'll see it. This monster thing has got to stop. You 
can't get rid of the pepper dog. Get a spoiler right out of the way. Does the dog die.com? Yes, <laughs> the dog yes. dies.com. So I saw that dog and I was like, oh, fuck, here we go. And I was like, well, maybe, just maybe it'll make it right. And then the second book, like the book that's pieced back together, yeah. and it shows like her going crazy in the pop outs. Then you see her strangling the dog, breaking its neck in the pop-up book. I was like, oh, fuck. She might not go all the way. She might overcome the Babadook's possession by the end. But she's going to get to that edge. And in order to get to that edge, she has to kill this fucking dog. And sure enough, towards the end of the movie, she kills the fucking dog. <laughs> FYI. Right around <right laughs> the beginning. Interestingly enough, though, nobody else in this movie dies. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the husband. Of- but, but he was already dead. Yeah, yeah he, he was, was already dead. dead when the story began. So... Let's let's do a little table setting. When we started this podcast, one of the first things we did was make a list of movies throughout all ages and subgenres, like we say in our intro. Aaron made most of the beginning list, but there were three that I absolutely wanted on there and I wanted us to cover at some point on our show. And those three were It Follows, which we did on our second episode, The Sentinel, which we did, what, our third episode, like right after It Follows, (laughs) and then The Babadook, because... For some reason, those three movies like stood out in my mind. You know, and It Follows and The Babadook were a lot closer together in terms of modern horror and kind of this renaissance of modern horror we're seeing. I wouldn't say it kicked off with those two movies, but they were kind of on the early end of like the last decade or so. Of I would say the horror. like A24 artsy indie horror boom is that's really kind of what started around like 2012, 2013. Yeah. yeah. This was certainly an early standout of that. Yeah. And like, you know, it, it was a Sundance film where it premiered and everything else. It even did crowdfunding to get it funded. Yeah. Jennifer Kent had never done a full length feature before this movie. This was her first. And something about it just something about the Duke latched on to me at back in 2014. And granted, Sven and I, I, we weren't even sure back then that we wanted to have children. And so we decided to like wait on this movie. Not sure why, just the timing and everything else, but it's been on our list since the beginning of the show. And I am kind of glad we waited to watch it now that I am a father. And have been a father for a year. Yeah, a year. Is this movie scary, right? From the, the newbie, the coward's perspective. This, more than maybe any other movie we've done, I went back and forth on. I know this is a cop-out answer, but it's yes and no. And the reason why, I think if you're an adult of any kind who has gone through any kind of trauma, especially if you've dealt with the loss of a loved one, doesn't have to be like a spouse, but you know, just anyone you've been yeah. close to, you can relate to this movie. Yeah. Grief sucks. Yeah. Yeah. Grief sucks. If you have a young child and you are the, either a single parent or the primary caregiver like me, I'm the, I'm the stay at home with my child. You can relate to this movie. And when I say relate, I mean, it gets under your skin. So when I was actively watching it, it scared me. 
haunted house movies scare me probably the most out of any anything else demonic possession haunted house just there are natural tropes of that idea that are always going to scare me yeah there were scary scenes in this movie certainly a lot of creep factor it was extremely creepy the whole way out even just like when they were looking through the pop-up book of mr babadook even just that pop-up book in that weird childlike artwork of the babadook slowly becoming more and more menacing until it's literally like a dark void cloud with a demonic face was fucking creepy the flashes of the babadook in the background were all fucking creepy but it wasn't autopsy of jane doe level like you know jump scare fest on the screen is scary what bothered me or like the fears that stuck with me is like the shining probably more than maybe any other movie we've done at the top of my head the babadook got under my skin and i thought about it more and more and i would think about it at nighttime when my daughter and my wife were already asleep and moments of the movie would pop into my head feelings that the movie like brought up would pop into my head and creep me out the shining is probably my favorite horror movie of all time and not necessarily because of how scary it is when you're watching it actively but how much it psychologically fucks with you and yeah. how it sits with you afterwards and that's what the babadook was for me so is this a movie that horror newbies can watch probably maybe but i can't say guarantee yes or no because you could watch it and be like oh that wasn't that bad and then you you know a week later you're sleeping with your light on because you're thinking about something crawling on your ceiling or a dark fucked up thing that happened in this movie for me while the mom is kind of going crazy and like what is reality what's actually happening there's a scene where she's watching tv and it's a news report and it's a news report from her own house about a mother stabbing her son and then wielding a knife at police and being shot dead by the police portraying this as like this just random act of violence that had no rhyme or reason which is something we see a lot of in modern times with family uh, annihilators and then in the window you see her own face and she's grinning yeah and she's like menacingly like possession grinning and it zooms in on her face there's a weird sound effect like that image stuck with me so much i would like be laying in bed trying to fall asleep i'd hear the babadook noise in my head and i'd remember that image specifically and i couldn't fall asleep for a little while i even had a dream with the Duke in it after we I watched it in between then and now like it's a movie that stuck with me I think to you know the question of is this movie scary for newbies and seasoned horror viewers I think it all depends on what your sensitivities are because if supernatural creepy entity stuff gets to you then yeah this is probably gonna get to you but if you are sensitive to like real life trauma stuff if you are sensitive to depictions of child abuse and neglect if you are sensitive to you know depictions of grief and potentially you know mental health trauma if any of that stuff genuinely affects you on an emotional level this movie is probably going to get under your skin a little bit yeah and that's honestly the other thing that really creeped me out that i didn't bring up and i think jennifer kent herself said that she wanted to like explore this idea of parental specifically you know historically the stay-at-home parent is the mother frustration with your child and how like that's been demonized or not talked about oh no you should always unconditionally love your child yeah you can unconditionally love something and in that moment not like them and like be extremely fucking frustrated at them that's where it clicked with me because i'm a stay-at-home dad 
I have a child who is about to start walking. I have a child who like literally is clingy and I can't leave the room to like poop or something without them screaming for a little bit. Yeah. Frustration with your child is real and it's not their fault. And then you feel guilty for feeling like negative feelings towards your child because you know it's not their fault. And that there you go. That's the Babadook. Yeah. But that is also like a very strong social taboo that parents are not supposed to wish harm on their kids. Parents are not supposed to wish that their children were just not around. The whole idea of my child is a giant mistake that I wish I could undo is a very taboo thing. And this movie is definitely playing with that idea. Even just the idea of like, leave me the fuck alone for just an hour or two, please. You know, and and now that's a taboo when it really shouldn't be. It should be talked about more because it's a normal like parental feeling. Yeah. And on the flip side of it, you know, if one side of the spectrum is, oh my God, my child is this fucking monster that I cannot escape. The flip side is if you're the child and your parent has become this abusive monster that you have to run and hide from, but you know you should love your parents. You know you should love your mother, you want to love your mother, but she has become this monstrous thing. Looking at the movie from both perspectives and considering both perspectives is interesting, because as much as you just want to, like, shake the fuck out of that kid for the entire first 30 minutes or so of this movie that dynamic shifts and you definitely feel bad for him by the end and you just want to like pick up that kid and give him a hug and tell him everything's gonna be okay and you're definitely seeing it through his eyes as his mother has fully subsumed and become the monster that he cannot escape now so that entire dynamic flips on its head halfway through no other movie can I think of establishes like a kid and the big beginning as being annoying or, or whatever and then flips it and like does this face turn almost yeah in this successful of a way and i'm glad you brought that up because when I, I peek behind the curtain i usually don't take notes usually i'm very free form aaron's more of the take notes person at least for like you know production sake and all that i took notes for this movie and i took a lot of notes on just the things that made me feel my own personal like analysis and headcanon with trying not to look at other people's analysis and headcanon one of the first notes i took was this movie Going off what you just said, Aaron, it subverts and flips the creepy evil kid trope. The movie sets up the son is extremely troubled, even maybe a little violent, and the parent is struggling. And then, like, it brings in this creature called Mr. Babadook to the point where the child is even, like, talking to this invisible entity. Okay, I can see where this is going. Now the kids can become more and more demonic, right? But then the movie turns its head and being wide open with spoilers, the creature possesses the mom instead. And it becomes a bit of the shining in that way of Jack Torrance going insane from the Overlook Hotel, even though in the beginning of the movie, Danny is the one like hallucinating or seeing the ghost acting creepy and weird. But then it turns into like him having to run from his father in this case in this movie it's the boy running from his mother and like it even became a little bit of like a demonic home alone sequence by the (laughs) end too but it does it pulls off that switch and that subversion of the evil kid trope so well and it turns it into the parent 
it's very easy, and I don't think this is wrong by any stretch, but it's not its not a secret what the Babadook represents. The Babadook represents the grief, the depression, the isolation, all of that stuff yeah. on the surface, but then you also have these other things at work here, like the dynamic between the mother and son, and like you said, how it heel face turns both of them by the end, and it does it so well. Yeah, totally. And dealing with grief... There's also that weird societal pressure to just get over it. Just move on. Like, the sister tells Amelia in this, It's been seven years. Oh my god, Jesus fucking Christ, you gotta move on. Why is this still, like, the main thing in the front of your brain? Well, because maybe it's still fucked up and it's something that you're always going to live with yeah in both cases i think they're both right and wrong because exactly the mom is in denial like she won't even bring up his name or she doesn't want even want to see pictures of him yeah. and like literally keeping everything in the basement if so if there's that fucking symbolism by the end of the movie i don't know what else but yeah like she's in such denial that like she won't even bring up his name or like look at pictures of him and so she isn't handling the grief in a healthy manner like after seven years you need to face that head on but then the sister is also being like, bro, think about it. She was in labor with their first and turns out her only child, her son, and he gets killed in a car wreck on the fucking way to the hospital to deliver him. Yeah, that is something I don't think I would ever get over in my entire life. Like, have yeah. a little empathy. Come on. It's also implied that his death was insanely gruesome and not yeah. just, oh, we were in a car wreck, impact, etc. killed him. If the Babadook impersonating her husband later on, playing out his death, if that's how it happened, like, that's fucked. Like, even yeah. just seeing that on in a normal circumstance would fuck you up, even if it's to, like, a stranger. But, like, being to the person you're deeply in love with in a time of what's supposed to be stress and joy of, like, well, welcoming a, a child yeah i yeah. mean <laughs> but yeah like obviously everybody deals with grief in different ways and in different time frames to a degree you kind of have to like take your grief out every once in a while acknowledge it and acknowledge why it was important to you like you literally have to kind of take that shoebox out from underneath your bed and kind of respect it acknowledge it but also kind of in a way to like remind yourself why you have to keep pushing forward yeah and why you can't let that just be the center of your life forever otherwise it grows into a tumor of misery that becomes a baba duke that tries to destroy you and everyone that you love around you yeah so. so you know there's a lot going on in this movie you know it doesn't just have one of these topics on its mind it's kind of all of these things together you know it's also certainly looking at what it's like just how difficult it is to raise a child on your own that work-life balance trying to juggle all the stuff at home trying to juggle work trying to juggle the kid you know the moment where she's at the birthday party for her niece all of her sister's friends who were all dressed exactly the same and kind of had the same exact fucking haircut and everything yeah. the one woman was like oh yeah it's so hard you know i can't even go to the gym anymore you know she just kind of looked at her and was like oh boo fucking who you know because this again is a mother who is working you know long hours at a 
elder care facility and coming home dealing with this kid who's acting out and having to deal with his behavior problems at school and you know you can also probably assume that there's money and financial issues that they're having to deal with constantly which dear lord if she wasn't behind on fucking bills and kind of struggling financially before now she's been in like a fucking car accident she's ripped a tooth out and gotten stabbed in the leg so lord knows that's going to be a fucking interesting er visit she's having to like figure out where to put her kid and probably in some other kind of school that's presumably like a private or a charter school kind of situation where she's having to pay to have the kid there damage to her house just all these weird things like man if anything the real monster is financial debt by the end of this movie Uh, So, quick note, while I was editing this episode, it dawned on me just how insane that spiel might sound to people who do not live in the U.S., Uh, especially since this movie is set in Australia, where a lot of these financial issues are just not that big of a deal, uh, thanks to socialized medicine and social safety nets. So, uh, yay hooray, USA! Well, and something, too, that I really liked that the movie didn't shy away from either was she's repressed sexually. Oh, sure. And the fact that it it does it for a middle-aged woman, like, that's something we never see really in movies. And, like, this movie doesn't shy away from the fact that, like, she's probably horny as fuck. You know, she had this unspeakable horror happen to her, uh, to the man she loved. And then, like, she's constantly seeing, like, these movies and stuff of, like, people kissing and having these romantic relationships. And, like, you know, there's that whole scene where she pulls the vibrator out she's gonna masturbate to finally like get some of that stress out of her and the fucking kid runs into her bedroom yeah right as she's about to orgasm because like there's this thing called the babadook in my closet you know i need to sleep in in bed with you obviously the first thing you want to hear right as you're about to nut is your kid coming in screaming that there's a monster in the closet yeah well so some of the the horrors i didn't expect this movie to capitalize on for me were fears of kind of the future of parenthood because like (laughs) yeah you're not there yet (laughs) there is a weird fear i have like is my kid gonna turn out to be like a mean kid, a bully, or like act out at school or like get bad grades or just like be difficult. Yeah. What do I do with that? Like, how do I respond to that? Because like, I want to love them with all my heart, but like, you know, you have to be the parent. Yeah. These are the things that also keep me up at night when I think about it is, oh God, what is she going to be like when she's seven years old and like wants to steal the toy from someone else and like pushes kids down or whatever? Like, how do I respond to that in a way that's healthy for both me and her and, you know, our family? dynamic you know this movie especially like you know god forbid something happening to me or savannah in this case like you know what do you do and i think what you were getting at with her environment is who do you turn to because the kid has to turn to you and you have to be the parent but who do you turn to like to get some of that stress out yeah exactly so as far as inspiration and everything for this apparently jennifer kent had a friend who was a single mother and she had a young son who was supposedly seeing a monster in their house right oh god that's always that's I'm just i'm waiting for that fucking scenario to happen when autumn is like four yeah just wait you're gonna like walk in her room and she's gonna be like sitting in the walking corner, to the wall yeah talking to the corner of the you know ceiling yeah so she kind of toyed around with the idea and she made this short film called the monster in 2005 starring susan pryor from the rover and animal kingdom this is essentially a 10-minute short film in black and white that is all the gist of the Babadook. It's a 
kid who has maybe got behavior issues, a little bit hyperactive, a little aggressive, a little just intense. Kid's a handful. Mother's clearly a little bit overwhelmed, overworked. You know, she is single mother. We don't really find out any of the, like, relationship trauma side of things in this short story at all. That's never really the point or explored. Anyway, yeah, the kid is, like, seeing this monster, and the monster lives in the closet. In this version, it's very underlined that the monster is the mother, right? The monster in this version is very feminine, kind of wearing a black Victorian tattered kind of gothic-y dress uh, with long stringy hair veil kind of thing, right? The monster in this version is very explicitly feminine and is very much an expression of the mother. And then the whole thing obviously ends with the mother kind of giving it the ultimatum of go back in your fucking closet, don't come out without me letting you out, essentially. And the creature just kind of says, yeah, fuck it, all right, cool. Goes back in the closet, shuts the door, end of movie. But then you see the same thing where she then brings the monster a glass of milk. So there's still that thing of I have to kind of from time to time nurture and address and deal with my problems. You know, that entire angle is still there. And and that's something that Jennifer Kent was very specific about when it came to this movie was, like you mentioned, the remaining funds of this movie, it's about $30,000 worth, was all raised via Kickstarter. Because American distributors who were like totally down to like put this movie out and were willing to put up money, they were like, yo, you gotta like defeat the monster at the end. You gotta kill it. The Babadook's gotta die. No, uh uh. Right? Bad idea. entire point was no, the Babadook is this representation of your inner demons, mental health issues, grief, etc. It's shit that you live with daily and requires constant management throughout your entire life it's not just stuff that magically will go away it's not a monster to be defeated never to be seen again it's stuff that is always with you it will it will always be there and you have to like take care to manage it and contain it you know so she was like absolutely not that's not happening. That totally goes against everything that I'm trying to do with this movie. You know, so no, no thanks. I'll figure out the money myself. Yeah, and it kind of reminded me, I was thinking like, well, at the end of the day, we all have our own Duke. It reminded me of a comic I saw. It, it was a web comic, and I don't remember who drew it, so I apologize. I don't have the credit for it, but it was a comic about like what it is to live with depression. You know, listeners, if you haven't heard on past episodes, I have chronic depression and anxiety. In the past, it has been suicidal. Like, it's been bad. You know, I've had shit I've had to deal with. Again, my own personal Duke. But I remember during one of my depression lows a, a couple of years ago, seeing this comic that this artist drew, like, as like, what does it represent to him? And it was this person that had this big black dog. Think of a dog that's made out of a void and has like two white eyes. That is her depression. And then some days the dog is like really small and it just follows them by their feet. And other times it's a giant Clifford, the big red dog sitting on their chest and like they are just stuck in bed or whatever. And that's kind of like along the same lines as this. And if we want to get into like what the Babadook, the creature actually is in this movie, I had a couple things taking into account the idea of what it represents. Here are two things. And this is just my own thought process 
us not necessarily reading too much into other analysis. Uh, the first one, and you're going to laugh at this one, Aaron, bringing in Jungian psychology and the Persona games, actually. And I know I brought up Persona 5 in the past. Yeah. And I know that you have a little bit of experience. You know the general gist of Persona 5 because your wife has played it. The Babadook almost feels like the shadow self of specifically the mom, but also maybe the son has fed into it a little bit. And then in the Persona games, your shadow self, it's you, but fucked up. Whatever deepest, darkest things about you is your shadow self, just like in in that psychology theory. But the thing is, it it is who you are. It's just as much as important as to who you are as your regular self. And in the Persona games, if you can't accept your shadow, if you can't accept that, the shadow, it fucks with certain characters. Like It can make them corrupt them and make them do evil shit in the real world. And I think even between Persona 3, 4, and 5, which I played 3, 4, and 5, it can even like kill you but you can't live without your shadow because if your shadow is killed then you will die or you will just become like coma person but that's going into the weeds a bit but a person manifests their persona when they accept their shadow fully and the shadow morphs into their persona and you know they can use their persona in battle and all that yada yada yeah but in the context of this movie it feels like mr babadook is her shadow self she hasn't quite accepted yet and now it's it's, she hasn't accepted for years and years it's gotten to the point where now the shadow is so powerful it's lashing out all on its own and like these weird demonic ways yet it still can't live without her which i think is why it, it kind of is more trying to target the child and use her as a vessel and then on the other hand the other thought i had is if we really want to make this a literal like thing like this was literally brought into existence my own kind of fan head canon it's not necessarily even a shadow self but more of a cognitive thought form or a tulpa sure that's been yeah. fed by all this grief and isolation and mental illness that both her and her son have dealt with for seven years now and think about it when they're not at work and he's not at school they're just in that fucking house they yeah they go and like do stuff with the aunt but like the aunt really doesn't want them there and otherwise they are very isolated in this house so like all of that shit is being fed into this thought form this tulpa and it makes itself manifest more and more in their lives once it hits that boiling point of first it shows up as the book twice and then it starts showing up in like dreams and hallucinations and like in the background and because its nature is to consume them it's not necessarily acting out for pure evil it's just the way it is it's like a thunderstorm that's fueled by like grief and depression and despair the manifestation of it once like it fully manifests is even kind of made up of the things the mom is seeing or the ch- mom and her, her son are seeing around them. She's seeing all these like weird old timey cartoons and movies and stuff. Yeah. Jennifer Kent has said that the Babadook's appearance is based off of Lon Chaney. I think she's watching a movie with Lon Chaney in it at one point. Uh, no, she's not. So the movie with Lon Chaney that she was talking about is a lost movie directed by Todd Browning called London After Midnight. Oh, uh, okay. I gotcha. His character look from that that they took a shit ton of stills from it for promotional things. And so that character has gone on to live a very interesting life, but this movie never actually happened. What she's watching is George Melier's silent film stuff. Oh, uh, okay, yeah, yeah. And then she's also watching Black Sabbath by Mario Bava at one point. So, like you said, there's a lot of the like weird old-timey kind of shit happening, but to your point... 
think about all the other bits and pieces of things in the house. There's a coat rack that has a jacket and a hat on it that's in the corner at all times. And that kind of casts really weird kind of creepy shadows when the lights are turned out. Downstairs in the basement, she has her husband's suit and hat and everything hung up. And so that kind of creates like this weird character. So like... Every room that she goes in, there's these weird kind of ghostly false images of, you know, some kind of entity in the house with them, even though it's just essentially empty clothing, which is what the Babadook essentially turns into by the end of the movie. And that's why I think there is some, if we really want to try to actually explain, like, which I don't think this movie it makes any effort to, like, do this, nor should it, but it's just for fun, I, I thought about I get what it represents. We all get what it represents. And then the movie does it very well. But like how it actually manifests, because it obviously has some kind of physical presence. Yeah. It obviously is a thing unto itself. And that's where I landed on the tulpa idea, because people create tulpas. And a lot of times tulpas, you're putting your own energy into it. And so, of course, these ideas of like what she's seeing on the TV and the top hat imagery and all of that in there. And this was something I didn't realize going into the movie. But the Babadook at some certain points has a lot of roach imagery and even acts a yeah. little bit like a roach during the, the nightmare scene where like it's crawling on the ceiling. It acts very like roach like. You also constantly hear that buzz of cicadas buzz, yeah. in the background yeah. as well. And their neighbor's name is Mrs. Roach. So yeah. even when as far as like maybe there's some weird subconscious subversion of that let me take that piece of like our neighbor's name mrs roach i'm watching these weird old timey like silent film movies and you know there's that element to the baba duke's appearance and then you know my child's wild imagination and like all the stuff that's around the house and like this gives birth to like the mr baba duke himself and it physically manifests in our reality as this violent tulpa but it's also like a shadow self to her as well which is why once she actually confronts it head on and is like accepts it but also like scolds it and says you know you will not take my son you will not ruin our lives this is still my house it retreats into the basement and that's where she cultivates it you know in the basement with all the memories of her husband and that's when they're finally successful is like when she does acknowledge when they both acknowledge its existence and she goes and like she feeds it the worms at the end and you know she acknowledges it's there and almost treats it like a pet in a weird way but she can't get rid of it she can't kill the Babadook yeah she can be on terms with it she can come to terms and like you said like we should do with our grief grief and bad memories and trauma doesn't go away but it doesn't mean it has to rule and dictate our lives and consume us like it almost consumes them yeah totally yeah, as far as the design of the Babadook, you know, we mentioned kind of the bug imagery. Like I said, there's constantly that cicada buzzing happening whenever the Babadook is around. I love the, like, just silently floating forward. There's something just so eerie and unsettling about that that's great. Yeah, like when he, like, shows his hands extend a little yeah. bit and he starts floating towards her. Yeah, that scene was pretty creepy. Yeah. Um, and, and again, the call, you know, the Babadook's call, which anyone who has, like, any sense for this movie knows it that is really creepy especially like letting you know its appearance is near the thing that i i was surprised 
about because you always see that on the imagery for this movie a clear shot of the Babadook's pale face with the big wide grin and like demonic looking eyes. So I thought at some point that you would see the Babadook's face, but it's actually just a still for when the Babadook lunges at her from the, the ceiling. And that's such a quick cut of stills. It's like a second or two long. Yeah. You never see the Babadook's face if you're just watching it and you're, and you, you're not pausing it. Yeah, I was a little surprised we actually didn't see the Babadook's face on screen for very long at all. You just saw more of the shadows and everything. Yeah, and it's kind of the same exact way in the original short film. There's that moment where the Babadook kind of lunges toward the camera, but it's clearly just a series of very quick choppy still shots stitched together to kind of create that herky-jerky movement kind of thing to make it seem that much more like unnatural and unsettling. So yeah, I, I really, really dig the entire look and feel of the Babadook as a creature. Yeah, I, I would be reminisced to say that, again, Lon Chaney, you know, movie monster master himself was a direct inspiration for the actual design of the character. I also really like the pop-up book. Yeah. You know, that's that's something that we've talked about before, that the trope Creepy as fuck. scary kid drawings that start off normal and it's all stick figures of families and sunshines and flowers and happy shit and then it becomes more and more sinister and then eventually it's just a bunch of fucking scribbles in the notebook, right? This pop-up book kind of has the slight edge of that as well. But I love how like it only is cutesy for about one page like where the Babadook's like kind of halfway in the doorway and waving. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's a you know a friendly shadow creature. You know, it's it's a good monster. And then like immediately the next page is like it towering over the child terrorizing him. <laughs> like, yeah. And I've read some reviews of this movie. I heard some people say like, oh, nobody would fucking make a kid's book that scary. Nobody would like fucking read a kid's book that scary. Whatever. When we were fucking growing up, we regularly rented from the library and read the like scary stories to tell in the dark books. Yeah. Which had some insanely fucked up illustrations in it. I just remember even innocuous things like the stinky cheese man. Remember that book? Did you ever yep. read that book growing up? Yes. The I illustrations did. in that are so fucking weird. Yeah. And surreal and kind of gothic y a little bit for a movie that's literally about a man made out of stinky cheese, right? Yeah, even uh goosebumps how popular were they yeah. for us as kids and some of the artwork on that is, i remember what is it like i just remember the artwork it's something at camp jelly jam it's this camp counselor like sitting there smiling but his his grin is almost too wide he's kind of hunched over and he has like his hands on his hips i remember that because i read i read a lot of the goosebumps growing up but i remember that one creeping me the fuck out as a kid and i would have to like hide the book when i wasn't reading it yeah it's the horror at camp jelly jam yes oh oh, i totally remember this cover now that i've seen i don't remember this book per se i'm sure i read it but yes i definitely like remember this cover yeah no it turned out to be like a invasion of the body snatchers style horror story of this alien taking over all the camp counselors yeah yeah that fucking cover with the camp counselor and like that weird fucking grin yeah we read all this shit growing up as little kids and like i think in that moment too like if if your kid just randomly grabs i want to read this book off the shelf hands it to you you start flipping through it i could see myself maybe going a page or two too far with my child before like realizing like oh fuck maybe we shouldn't be looking at this with him uh or her so like i 
I, I would find myself getting like brought into it being like, what the fuck is up with this book? <laughs> and like not stopping a, at a time. Yeah. And of course, it, I love how the movie then cuts to like her trying to read a regular story and he's fucking screaming because <laughs> she went too far in the Duke. God. So yeah, the book itself uh, is actually designed by illustrator Alex Juhaz, and you know he made a handful of copies for the movie. He had never really done this before. He was just an illustrator, but he figured out how to make all the pop-up stuff work. And as part of the marketing for this movie, physical copies were sold. They were 80 bucks a pop. 9,500 copies are sold. And I so fucking wish that I had known about it yeah. when it was available because I totally would have dropped that money. I 1,000% would have dropped the money to get a copy of it when it was out. I really wanted... So, like, that was something after watching this movie, I really wanted to buy that pop-up book. And if I was really mean, slip it somewhere in Autumn's nursery and, like, maybe one day Savannah will open it, like, not knowing better. But that's kind of like little mean-spirited so <laughs> i would at least like to own it though just to have it because that you know the pop-up book really is probably one of the creepiest if not the creepiest thing to me about this movie it is like you said we've talked about that trope of creepy horror kid drawings and how it's kind of tired trope and like it's usually goofy as fuck but this one is like is genuinely creepy yeah totally so another weird thing about the film um, and this was something that I kind of felt a little vindicated about. If there was one element to the film that was maybe a little goofy and w- where it did feel a little bit like, okay, yeah, this is a crown funded movie, is some of the growls and like screams of the Babadook. There was one in particular that sounded almost video game esque, very stock growl of <laughs> something, right? Uh... I looked it up and it's from World of Warcraft. And it's from whenever you talk to a dragon NPC in World of Warcraft, its default roar noise is like the roar that like pops up two or three times in the Babadook and that was the only time where I was like yeah alright that kind of took me out a little bit out of this movie but you know otherwise it was pretty forgivable little thing alright so I've got you one better on that not only were there audio samples taken from Warcraft 2 but there were audio samples taken from the video games Biohazard UFO Enemy Unknown and Mortal Kombat 3 specifically Motaro's screaming is directly lifted for this movie yeah I didn't realize the other video game stuff was used but that makes sense because yeah those some of those growls and screams it makes are kind of goofy but uh, another thing I thought that was interesting what the word Babadook actually is I don't think it was ever officially stated I saw that in a Hebrew Ba Baduk so B-A-B a-D-O-O-K means he is coming for sure. Uh, so, you know, that's pretty on the nose with Mr. Babadook himself. And I also really enjoy Jennifer Kent because like, you know, after watching this, I was like, OK, you know, Jennifer Kent, like this was her breakout movie. This movie crushed the year it came out and it put her on the map as far as directing goes like, you know, and I was looking stuff up on her. And one thing she said that I really appreciate because this was something we even brought up way back on It Follows. She has said there is never going to be a sequel to The Babadook. It was never meant to have a sequel. Yeah. And as far as she's concerned, there will never will be a sequel. And I think that is great. I think The Babadook doesn't need a sequel. I think it stands on its own in the same way that It Follows can stand on its own. Although I think on It Follows there has been talks of a sequel to it, which would suck. 
But she has even said she will never even allow a sequel to be made. Her words, she says, it's not that kind of film. I don't care how much I'm offered. It's just not going to happen. This is literally what she was quoted as saying, and I really appreciate that. Yeah, I 1000% don't think you need a sequel. Because, I mean, you know, all it is is just going to be like, we're exploring where the Babadook came from and what are its origins. And like, that's not the point. That's not at all what matters, right? That doesn't work because the Babadook came from the mother and son. Yes. And their grief. And that's where it came from. Like, it can't do a, a sequel without them in it and the creature being tied to them and that just defeats the whole purpose of it being such a personal story between them yeah it is it is a like bespoke ghoul that is just for your own needs right so yeah there's no like reason to further explore its origins or its background or anything like that and i feel like if you just bring in a different protagonist it's just gonna be the same stuff like it's just gonna be the kind of the same story told all over again so why why bother with that right we don't need that again this movie is perfect so yeah i don't see any any need for that whatsoever um they want to know something uh going back to like the pop-up book itself i just did a quick ebay search for i just put in the babadook pop-up and the two listings i found and one of them is for the second edition not even the first edition uh one listing is seven hundred dollars yeah and the other listing is from Australia, and it's over $650 with, if you include shipping from Australia. Yeah, I didn't even bother to look it up because I know that it would just oh, yeah. have like pissed me off a little bit that I didn't yeah. grab a copy of that when it was available. Yeah, but I would love a copy so fucking much, man. Yeah, I definitely remember hearing about this movie after it went to Sundance. That's kind of first when it got on my radar because I was hearing lots of buzz of people just being like, yo, this is the creepy shit of the year. This is going to be the movie worth checking out. If you have a chance to see it, definitely go see it. You know, so just everybody was buzzing about it. You know, I remember hearing lots of just generally like good buzz in a variety of ways. You know, this was an amazing breakout film from a female horror director. This was an amazing performance from Essie Davis, who is mostly known for doing like Australian TV stuff. This was a wholly kind of new creature and mythology that wasn't based on any kind of existing IP explicitly. Just, you know, there were there were lots of things about this movie that had people excited. Speaking of Essie Davis, has she done Game of Thrones? Because she feels like a Game of Thrones actress. Just like when she gets really bombastic in this movie and is screaming and shouting so she totally is in game of thrones actually so okay so i was right about that yeah all right sc davis is the lead of the movie she was mostly in aussie tv and movies but she is in the matrix sequels including the video game <laughs> okay heather and i have been re-watching all of those movies because we still have not watched matrix resurrections Heather had not seen the second or third movie, so we went ahead and just dove into the pool for those. And I totally forgot that she was in them. She's not in them a whole lot. She's in the end of the second one, beginning of the third one, but she shows up in those. She's in Girl with the Pearl Earring, Isolation, Australia. She has a 
kind of long-running serialized TV show called Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries. Uh, she was in the Assassin's Creed movie, and then she's been in a bunch of streaming stuff the last couple years, including the true history of the Kelly Gang. But yeah, she was in Game of Thrones for just a few episodes. Hell, did you even watch Game of Thrones past the third or fourth season or whatever? No, I tapped out around season three, I think. All of her stuff was material that the books had not gotten to yet involving Arya's character but she's only in like I think three or four episodes basically but anyway yeah like she's fucking fantastic in this movie she and Jennifer Kent attended drama school together and this role was actually specifically written with Davis in mind because Jennifer Kent knew like she had the range to pull this off Noah Wiseman plays Samuel the son he has really only been in shorts after this so I don't know that actually Acting is something that he will pursue going forward, but great kid performance, all said and done. I, I read a couple of blurbs where they auditioned several child actors, and just all of them had too much self-awareness and too much, I am a child actor, I need to be creepy child. And they wanted a kid who genuinely, like, you could kind of see the, like, innocence in, right? And also, to talk about some, like, really excellent planning and editing, Wiseman and Davis were usually acting apart from each other. Yeah, because I read that Kent didn't want Wiseman to be traumatized yeah. to the point where, like... She was very protective of him. Yeah, and, like, they had the mom on set and, like, gave him a very limited script and any scenes that involved her, like, screaming at him or being, like, emotionally abusive towards him, like, he wasn't actually there. Yeah. It's really fucking impressive in that car scene when she screams, why can't you just be normal? Yeah, which, that's the meme everybody has seen, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the editing, like you said, is really, really impressive, if that's the case, keeping them apart during those more intense scenes. Yeah, and I started kind of thinking about that and paying attention to it in hindsight, and most of the time when she's screaming and being threatening and yelling obscenities, we're just seeing her in the frame, and so then clearly the child is acting like against somebody else, and I'd read that the adult that was delivering dialogue to him was mostly just saying things like yeah 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 and if you don't be a good boy i'm gonna take your legos and throw them in the river and of course that gets a like <gasps> shocked reaction out of him right but yeah that's some very clever and creative planning and editing that has to go into like making that actually work because again imagine being an adult and yelling the line if you're that hungry then why don't you go and eat shit to a child <laughs> <laughs> right uh, that, that one will fly <laughs> yeah this house is the only thing in this movie where i'm a little bit like eh, i don't know how i feel about that i think i've mentioned this on the show before but purposely creepy houses are a thing that i don't for one second fucking buy that you actually live in that house the house from The Conjuring, for instance. That house is fucking terrifying. It's full of old <laughs> shit. Literally all the paint is cracked and there's mold everywhere. Yet this family with four children moves in and is like, isn't this house wonderful? Nothing creepy could ever happen here. The house from The Conjuring 2, even worse. The fucking infield one where it's one of these small tiny suburb houses. And again, the entire house covered in mold. Mold everywhere. 
everywhere. Every fucking corner has like dark mold and seep spots. Nobody would be living in this fucking house. You just did this to purposely make it look creppy. I don't fucking buy that somebody lives there. So yeah, this house with all of its dark paint, you know, no visible windows. There is light coming from dot 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 places because all of it's a set. So this is another instance of literally the entirety of the inside of the house is a set that they built. Yeah, I got that, but I also, to be fair, it didn't bother me that much at all. The house, it wasn't super duper creepy to me, at least, like in that weird haunted house way that we we talked about back on the Changeling episode with Shelby. I took it as like, this is the only place she can afford, given her job and like all the stressors going and all that. Sure. And that Mrs. Roach is really kind of throwing her a bone. Sure. If Mrs. Roach is the landlady. And that very well could be the case. But it's still just one of those weird things where, like, that's where I struggle to, like, turn my logic and movie brain off and just kind of go with it. Because, yeah, again, I'm just thinking the entire time, like, no, you would not be living in this fucking house. But, yeah, the house itself, all the interiors, it's all just one set. It's actually a two-story set, which is fairly unusual. But because there was a lot of actively going up and down the steps, they decided to build it as a two-story set. Which, to your point earlier about the claustrophobia and the tension and kind of being this weird sweat box in which this tulpa-like entity kind of forms out of their grief and trauma just all being contained in this house... Maybe it's one of those things, too, where, like, little by little, the character of the house has changed into this kind of dark and foreboding cave-like place. You know, maybe it's like a chicken and egg thing. What came first? I don't know, but... It doesn't seem like the Babadook likes light. Yeah, exactly. For instance. So, yeah, you're right. It definitely seems like the kind of thing where, you know, that house has clearly seen better days. You know, we get the impression that maybe this was a cute little house back when it was just the two of them before, you know, there was Samuel and before the husband was gone. You know, so the house has kind of become this new, weird, breeding pit for this dark entity to form. Yeah, so kind of since we're we're on the topic of the production, everything else, and we've talked about her a few times, Jennifer Kent herself, the director, she wrote the screenplay, she made the short film, all of that. With this being her breakout, she seems like she kind of takes her time with her work because she only has one other feature film, The Nightingale. You've talked to me in the past about this. I don't think, yeah, I don't think we'll ever cover it because I don't know if it's capital H horror, but is there any kind of through line you can see between this film and The Nightingale? No, because The Nightingale is 100% a historical drama. It, It is not a horror movie. There is lots of horrific shit that happens in it. There is lots of sexual assault and there is lots of violence and there is lots of rough shit, but there is no horror movie genre horror in that one necessarily. It's a very left turn from what this movie is doing. Now, what I am excited about, she is next going to be doing an episode of Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities which is a Netflix anthology that Del Toro is show running and producing. He is going to be directing two of the episodes, but then the rest of the episodes are going to be directed by Anna Lily Amapur, who did Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, Panos Cosmatos, who did Mandy, Catherine Hardwick from the Twilight series, 
Vincenzo Natale, who did Splice and Cube. Guillermo Navarro, who was Del Toro's DP for years. He is jumping on for one of them. David Pryor, who directed The Empty Man. And then Keith Thomas, who is doing this upcoming remake of Firestarter. They are all going to be the other directors on this, along with Jennifer Kent. And if I read correctly, Essie Davis is going to be back in Jennifer Kent's episode as well. Yeah, so I pulled up the wiki on this show. And not only is she directing and writing episodes, she's the first episode, apparently. You're right, Essie Davis is the lead cast in that episode. Also, for the one that David Pryor is doing, it says it's teleplay by David S. Goyer. So David S. Goyer helped write that episode, I guess. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because like, I also see Peter Weller is, is casted in this. Crispin Glover yeah. is, is, is in an episode of this. So it's it's it has an interesting cast. But yeah, you told me... Kind of off recording, like the general gist of the Nightingale, and yeah, man, that movie seems real dark and fucking intense. It's interesting. She went from the Babadook to this. Yes, the Babadook is also dark and intense, but not nearly in the same way as this movie is. Yeah, it looks like it's going to be pretty interesting. So I'm curious to see what she does. And you know, I've said it before with other people. Jennifer Kent sold me enough with this first movie that whatever she puts out from here on, I'm going to give it the time of day for sure. Yeah. Just there's no reason not to at least give it a try when the, you know, first outing from a director is this strong. Yeah. The Babadook is that good y'all. As far as the rest of the legacy of this movie is concerned, William Friedkin has frequently championed this film stating it's one of his favorite horror films and one of the most horrifying that he's ever seen. You know, funny enough, This movie is now kind of a meme within the queer community because Netflix mistakenly categorized it under LGBTQ plus films. Shout Factory slash Scream Factory has the distro rights for this in the US. They have a great Blu-ray out. I actually have the Blu-ray that has the like pop-up book packaging cover to it. But they have since released a Pride edition, uh, which just has like a rainbow That's cover awesome. just for shit. That's fantastic. Well, and I, I love how like it's very tongue in cheek because there's there's really no like overt LGBTQ yeah, not at all. themes in this movie. But like I love how like people have gone on to tongue in cheek say like, well, the Babadook himself is over the top, has a grotesque costume and persona, is super chaotic and like messes with the traditional family. Yeah. So like, <laughs> you know, I do like that it's gone on that. And I love what Kent, did you read what Kent said about it? Like when she was asked about what specifically? Oh, uh, so she said she loved the whole meme and she and this is the quote she said i think it's crazy and the meme just kept him alive i thought oh you bastard he doesn't want to die so he's finding ways to become relevant (laughs) (laughs) a tulpa he's a tulpa yeah exactly i can also say that i have seen more than one drag version of this before i fucking bet there are plenty of them so yeah definitely an interesting twist to this movie just tell me it was on that drag show dragula dragula was it on that i don't think it was on that specifically so there's a music video from new jersey drag queen pissy miles called babashook 
which is like a dance track. Fantastic. Totally Babadook drag, which is pretty great. Yeah, like I've, I've seen a couple of wild versions of that. Like I've seen some pictures of people done up as Babadook at Pride Parades as a joke. So yeah, like it's wild how that's become a thing and I kind of fucking love it. Yeah, because I, I do remember 2014 came by and like the Babadook was the talk of anyone who had any horror sensibilities. Kept it in the back of my brain. is like, yeah, I really want to check this movie out. And then like, yeah, 2016 rolled around and all of a sudden just a ton of gay pride Babadook memes were being passed around. And for a while, I didn't understand the origin, but I loved it anyway. When it's in the context of the pop out book, it's creepy as fuck. But like they take that cut out of the Babadook in the pop up book and then put it like against a rainbow flag and he looks just goofy as fuck and I love it. Yeah. <laughs> He's just like, hello, hi. Yeah, it's good <laughs> shit. No, I, I think there's even a part like it's in the rhyme about the Babadook the longer you go without acknowledging it, the more it'll scare you and the more it scares you, the more power it gets, almost like Freddy Krueger. But the idea that it gets more powerful the longer you go without acknowledging it is like right in your face subtext of grief. If you don't manage your trauma and your grief, yes, tragic things are unfair and they shouldn't happen to good people and they shouldn't happen to you. But when they do, like you have to acknowledge them because if you don't acknowledge it, if you pretend like it doesn't exist and just keep going about it will pop up in your life in weird ways and it can consume your life yeah it can ruin your life which is very much what the movie was trying to show the longer the mother went ignoring it the more powerful it got at first she didn't accept it because she was acknowledging it it was just so powerful that it overtook her she became literally possessed and then it wasn't until she had to confront it directly for the sake of her son is like when she finally had power over it you could almost tell like when it's defeated it almost shrinks down to like this little puppy that still is full of menace but it's just a puppy now um and then it roars and runs downstairs and like fuck you mom like (laughs) slams the door and hides in the basement i've love 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 the very end when she brings the worms to it you know, it is, it is a little comical, but it is a good representation of, you know, all that grief and stuff that it is going to always be horrific and ugly, but it's just how you acknowledge it. And then you can make it just as powerless as like a little puppy if you come to terms with it. I think the movie is just doesn't try and hide. It's not super esoteric. It's not trying to hide what it's saying and wears it on its sleeve, but it just executes everything so damn well in the process creates of highly creative, original, like horror character in Mr. Babadook. Hell yeah. This movie again, available from Scream Factory, Shout Factory, Second Sight Films in the UK just actually put out a great 4K deluxe set of this that I believe might be sold out, but it is available on streaming from time to time. As of recording this episode, it was not but that's not to say that when we put this episode out in several weeks it won't be so keep your eyes open this movie shows up on streaming quite often yeah i'm kind of surprised it wasn't on shuttered seems like it should be on shutter it has been in the past uh it's just kind of one of those rotating rights things so you can rent it and buy it everywhere because i rented it on on youtube and it was only like two bucks or three bucks or something for hd quality so yeah this is a fairly easily accessible movie so definitely check this out this is one of the best in this past decade for sure very excited to see what jennifer kent does from here quick question for you aaron you mentioned it being like one of the best of the last decade would you put this in your top 10 horror movies in the last decade movies that are horror and are important 
in terms of the impact that they had on the past decade, yes, it's definitely in the top 10. My personal favorites, probably so. I mean, this is one that I like a lot. My wife likes a lot. We have revisited this movie multiple yeah. times over the years. I was just thinking about that because we just done Get Out fairly recently with Kelly. Yeah. Go check out that episode. You know, Get Out is definitely on, on that top 10 list. We've done It Follows on our second episode and It Follows it like the Babadook was on the earlier end of the last decade. There's an argument there for that movie to be on the list, too. And then just, you know, there's always stuff that's still on our list that we haven't covered yet, like Hereditary, which a lot of people would say is like one of the best horror movies, period, and definitely one of the best in in the last decade, you know? So it just was a thought I had. Anytime, like, I think of those movies, the Babadook is always there next to them. Yeah, cool. Alright, well, yeah, this has been another episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast. In which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres, and also talk about how scary they are and all that shit. Um, you can find us at Watch If You Dare on Facebook and Twitter for our socials. Uh, you can find our show on all the major podcatchers at this point, specifically Apple Podcast uh, is a big one. Uh, please rate review us and follow us on apple Podchaser, good pods uh we've actually been charting on those three platforms specifically but we're you know we're also on spotify stitcher just everywhere please check out our spotify music playlist it is linked at the top of our social media uh, our twitter and our facebook speaking of music shout outs like always to your brother jesse mansfield aka party gator on Bandcamp, he's also in Possums and Big Clown and a million other music projects. He does the bumps at the beginning and end of each of our episodes. He may or may not have something cooked up for us for this summer. Don't want to give away too, too much yeah. for summer plans. If you are in the Memphis area around the time that this episode drops, definitely keep your ears open. He might be playing a show and opening for a pretty cool up-and-coming new band. So, uh, you know, if you're in that area do a quick google see if he's around and uh go check their show out all right so yeah it's getting kind of late here so we need to go ahead and break before derek turns back into the evil baba derek again oh it's not for another few hours wait what time is it by you uh it's midnight here uh, oh sh- oh shit really no You're nothing. This is my house. You're trespassing in my house. If you touch my Sally again, I'll fucking kill you. Insert wow dragon noises here as I run downstairs and lock myself in the closet. (laughs) 